0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, December 4th. I'm Marco Werman. Tens of thousands of Egyptians turn out to protest against President Mohamed Morsi.
1: The takeaway for the opposition today is going to be, we prove to you, President Morsi, that we do have the numbers, that you are facing a really unified, coherent, and very, very large opposition.
0: We'll hear the latest from Cairo, and later in the program, Amsterdam's new plan to reform troublemakers, exile them to live in shipping containers.
2: It sounds like a reality TV show. This is real life in the Netherlands.
3: The world is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. They are angry in downtown Cairo. Today, tens of thousands of protesters clashed with police near Egypt's presidential palace. And they shouted at the man inside that palace in a scene reminiscent of the Egyptian revolution last year. The demonstrators in Cairo now are against the new Islamist president, Mohamed Morsi, and his allies. The protesters want Morsi to revoke the decree he issued, granting himself broad new powers, and they're demanding the withdrawal of a constitution written by Islamist lawmakers, which Morsi wants to put to a vote next week. Reporter Noel King is in Cairo. Noel just describe the protest today and what you saw in terms of reaction from uh, forces of law and order.
1: Well, the numbers outside of the presidential palace in the Heliopolis neighborhood remain in the tens of thousands and possibly even in the hundreds of thousands. It's really difficult to Tell without getting an aerial view. But the aerial views that we've seen suggest that these numbers really are extraordinary. Now, we've seen a pullback of some of the clashes that we saw a little bit earlier. What seems to have happened is that a group of protesters broke through the police line, and the police responded, or the authorities responded, by firing tear gas at them. That led to about uh, two dozen injuries. But in the meantime, what seems to have happened is the police understood that they weren't really going to win this fight. They've pulled back, and at the moment, everything seems to be peaceful.
0: Right, we heard some of that tear gas uh, just a moment ago and some of the sound effects from the protests. Now, this uh, protest today part of this protest happened right in front of the presidential palace as we said, like a uh, scene from the 2011 uprising, but this time they're angry at Morsi, not Mubarak obviously.
1: That's right. And you know, the opposition, the the thing that they really needed to prove today with their opposition to Morsi was that they had the numbers. Remember, this is an opposition that's been really fractured since the revolution that overthrew Hosni Mubarak. They've been divided among themselves. There's been a lot of infighting. And in the meantime, President Mohammed Morsi and his Muslim Brotherhood have attained a a great deal of political power. And so what the opposition has been trying to do this week, and, and part of this movement at the presidential palace today was aimed at proving this, is that they do have hundreds of thousands of Egyptians. Egyptians. They like to say millions of Egyptians who are willing to stand beside them in in these type of peaceful protests. Now, interestingly, we're seeing this not just outside of the presidential palace in Cairo, but in Tahrir Square, in front of Maspero as well, which is the state television building, and in other cities throughout the country like Luxor, Horgada, Asyut, places where you don't normally see these kind of protests. So the takeaway for the opposition today is going to be we prove to you, President Morsi, that we do have the numbers, that you are facing a really unified, coherent, And very, very large opposition. Now, the response from the Muslim Brotherhood and President Mohamed Morsi has been somewhat dismissive. What they said about an hour ago was that the numbers of protesters outside of the presidential palace weren't any more than 2000, which seems very laughable to people here on the ground. Mm. But what they're trying to say in response is you don't have the numbers and you never did. And we are going to push ahead with this constitutional decree.
0: Now, the referendum on the draft constitution is uh, set for December 15th, and liberals say no matter whether or not they vote in this referendum, they lose. Can you explain that?
1: Yes, absolutely. What they say is if they boycott the referendum, it goes ahead and this constitution passes, then they're stuck with a constitution that they don't like. However, if the constitution doesn't pass, then Mohamed Morsi is going to hold on to the powers. Remember, he has said he's willing to give up this far-reaching authority as soon as Egypt has a new constitution. If it does he remains with this broad authority.
0: So tomorrow, uh, the media in Egypt is planning a, a kind of blackout, what they're calling a dark day. What is that all about?
1: That's right. There were about 11 newspapers that went on strike today and tomorrow, about five, so far, five independent TV stations say they're not going to broadcast. The fact of the matter is uh, journalists are not happy with this new constitution. They say simply it does not protect freedom of the press. Instead, it, it does things like it charges journalists with upholding public morality, which they are very displeased by.
0: Well, we're going to hear more about that in just a moment. Noel King in Cairo. Thank you so much.
1: Thank
4: you.
0: Those protests by Egyptian newspapers and TV stations reflect a growing concern about media freedom in the country. Many journalists and media observers in Egypt say President Morsi and his supporters have been using some very familiar tricks to clamp down on journalists who criticize them. Ben Gilbert reports from Cairo. When former Egyptian
5: President Hosni Mubarak left office in February 2011, journalist Sabah Hamamou saw her chance to make a groundbreaking change at Egypt's ossified state owned daily newspaper, Al Ahram. After dealing with years of red lines and stories that pandered to the ruling regime, its rich cronies, and the state security apparatus, Hamamou and other employees staged a sit in to eject the Mubarak appointed CEO from his office.
6: We wanted him to go. We told him, you have to resign. You've been appointed by a regime that's failed. You have to go.
5: It took some time, but like many of Mubarak's appointees at state-run media, Al-Ahram's CEO and senior editor were soon forced to resign. Hamamu returned to work as the deputy business editor. She had won a battle, but it turned out to be the first engagement of an ongoing war. Now, nearly two years after the revolution, she and other Egyptians are still fighting for an independent media. Last month, the government shut down satellite station Dream TV. The government said it was about a licensing issue, but one of the hosts said the move was due to the station's political programming that was often critical of the president. The station has since gone back on the air, but still may be potentially shut down. Another satellite network was shut down earlier this year after the station's owner was charged with insulting the president. In Egypt, that's still a crime. It's just one of around 30 Mubarak-era laws in the criminal code meant to muzzle the media with hefty fines and years in jail. Hiba Murayev is with Human Rights Watch.
7: The laws haven't changed, and the Penal Code criminalizes everything from insulting
5: public institutions to insulting the president, insulting a foreign diplomat, insulting a foreign king, spreading false information. So far this year, those laws have been used to file at least 900 formal complaints against journalists, talk show hosts, and their guests, producers, and editors. Many journalists and free speech advocates had hoped that President Morsi would abolish the country's Byzantine press rules and dismantle the Ministry of Information. Instead, he appointed a Muslim Brotherhood member to run the ministry, and state TV began running coverage overtly friendly to the Muslim Brotherhood, a group it had railed against for most of its existence under Mubarak. Elijah Zerwan of the European Council on Foreign Relations says overall, state media's coverage is more balanced than under Mubarak, but it still favors the power in charge, as evidenced by the recent coverage of anti-Morsi protests in Tahrir Square and
0: around Egypt. They're interviewing people in the square, they're showing the protests, but they're also featuring a lot of guests from the brotherhood. They had a panel where it was basically three people in favor of Morsi's decree and one person against. So they seem to be kind of struggling with it. I mean, they have an obligation to get the government side out because the government is footing the bill, but they're also trying to show both sides.
5: Morsi's government did appoint new management. Sabah Hamamou's new boss at Al-Ahram was one of the more curious picks, a journalist better known for using his columns to attack the protesters in Tahrir Square during the 2011 uprising than for supporting institutional reform. Hamamou says she's worried about the future of Egypt's media. Others share her concern, including Egyptian journalist and editor Rania al-Maliki.
6: There is this fear that it's going to be a return to how it was before, with the people in power controlling the message and framing the messages that are coming
2: out of the national press.
5: Malki says the problem isn't just the Muslim Brotherhood's desire to control the message, though that's true. She says after decades of dictatorship, Egyptian journalists working for state media don't think of themselves as government watchdogs, but as government employees.
6: They think of themselves not as national media, but as the media for the ruling party, you know, the voice of the government.
5: Malki would like to see Egypt's Ministry of Information replaced with a non-political independent media regulator like the BBC. Many journalists and other free speech advocates worry that's a long shot. But there is a glimmer of hope. Post-revolutionary Egypt has seen an explosion of new independent media outlets, and some of the fear that used to keep journalists and non-journalists silent has fallen away. For The World, I'm Ben Gilbert, Cairo, Egypt.
0: News from Syria now. NATO today approved the deployment of Patriot anti-missile batteries along Turkey's border with Syria. NATO foreign ministers approved the move after meeting with their Russian counterpart. Russia had opposed the Patriot deployment, but today the Russians said they would not interfere with Turkey's right to defend itself from the civil war on the other side of the border. The Russian comment could signal a move away from their support of the embattled Syrian president Bashar al-Assad. But even if Assad's support wanes, the conflict in Syria is likely to go on for a while, says Andrew Tabler. He's a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East policy. I would
8: suspect that even if President Assad would go, elements of his regime would hold on over part of the country where the Alawite minority from which the Assad regime hails is based and that's on the Syrian coast. Mm. So
0: uh, we're far from out of this. What are Assad's options at this point? I mean, he'll probably try to hang on. That's what we've seen so far. But then what? I think that now they're going to have a plan B where they
8: try and protect the core of the regime from um, revenge attacks, everything from people having their heads chopped off to simply being imprisoned or or executed. And it will be interesting to see what areas of the country they're able to secure when the regime begins to give way in the north and the east, where the most of the action and the fighting is taking place now.
0: So how would you characterize Russia's seeming dedication up to this point uh, to Assad? Is it kind of slipping away?
8: I think they are prepared for the fact that Assad is not going to be ruling over the entire country. I think they know that they're going to try and shore up their interests in Syria. and I think those will be primarily with the regime. I don't think that they will be uh, with the opposition. The opposition despises Russia. I think they see them as complicit in the um, murder of well over 45,000 Syrians. But ironically, the Syrian opposition also holds the Obama administration responsible for standing by while it was abused and brutalized. So the United States isn't going to have many allies in a post assad Syria either.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, with the situation deteriorating so rapidly in Syria, where does this leave Washington?
8: In a very difficult spot. Um, The idea was that, well, if we didn't arm the rebels, that somehow the sophisticated weapons would stay out of their hands. Instead, the rebels overran the weapons caches of the regime, and now those more advanced weapons are in the hands of extremists. And they've been increasingly showing up for the last uh, two weeks on, um, on videos. And they openly taunt the Obama administration that they're going to set up their own no-fly zone, that they don't need America's help, and that they're very angry. And um, a number of them out of Idlib province have actually been calling for an Islamic state. So not, uh, not a victory for the Obama administration.
0: You know, Andrew, so much thought has been kind of focused on Assad leaving. Isn't it possible that if he does leave in his absence, we'll see his Alawite followers become even more radicalized and kind of a situation like Iraq with the Sunnis uh, getting more radicalized?
8: I think it's worse because it's more diverse by the regime's slow demise and the rebel forces overrunning the weapons caches of the Assad regime. There's no way for the U.S. to try and control who receives those weapons. If there had been intervention earlier, we would have had a hope of that. I think now we're going to have to look at, well, what kind of political relationship are we going to have with this new emerging Syria or Syria's? And I'm afraid this conflict is going to go on for um, many more years before it's completely over.
0: What advice would you give the Obama White House right now on Syria? I would advise them to
8: have an individual program of working with uh, rebels that are sufficiently vetted and are not extremists and uh, helping those groups as well as the communities that they support and that support them to deal with all the trauma of this. Um, They need a hand. They're in a bind. They're in their hour of need. They've been asking for support from America. They haven't received it. It's time for the United States to do something. It's those who are taking the shots against Assad that will be calling the shots once Assad is gone, at least in the interim. We don't have a, a real strategy with that group of people.
0: Andrew Tabler, a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, thank you very much. Thanks. There's lots of confusion over events in Syria and Egypt right now and in the broader Middle East as well. The world's Matthew Bell is trying to make sense of political wins in Israel. You can read his latest blog post at theworld.org. This is PRI Public Radio International.
3: The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report online at MedtronicFoundation.org.
0: I'm Marco Worman. This is the world. Nobody likes to live next to troublesome neighbors. But what can you do other than move? Well, officials in the Dutch city of Amsterdam have a new idea. They're vowing to exile the worst offenders. The plan is to force persistent nuisance neighbors to live for a few months in shipping container homes on the outskirts of Amsterdam. They would have minimal services there and be under constant supervision. The BBC's Anna Holligan is covering the story in the Netherlands. Uh, This sounds like a pretty extreme kind of uh, punishment, Anna, but what actually would make someone a nuisance neighbour? What do you have to do to get yourself shipped out to a container?
2: It does indeed, doesn't it? I think you explained it perfectly. You know what it's like when you're living next door to someone who's in constant pain playing loud music or making a mess? And in Amsterdam, they think that this is the answer. Instead of forcing the victims to go and live elsewhere, forcing them to flee their homes, to escape from these nuisance neighbors, instead they're saying, look, if you cause a problem, we're going to put you in one of those containers. And so we're talking about things like um, abuse. They're they're very concerned about um, gay people in Amsterdam who have been targeted by uh, nuisance neighbours and also people who have had their cars attacked and witnesses, people who have been speaking to the police. They have also been targeted. So it's kind of an effort to protect those vulnerable people.
0: Well, it it sounds to me like if you're gay and getting harassed or if you're a police witness and you're being intimidated, I mean, don't they have jail for those kind of offenses?
2: Well, I think what they're hoping to do is stop it before it gets to that point. And in the Netherlands, they're quite good at keeping their jail figures down, unlike the uh, United States. And so maybe this, they think, will help do that and act as a deterrent. Because can you imagine if you think, well, shall I make a mess? Oh, maybe not, because I might be forced to go and live in isolation in one of these really basic containers. It really might make people think twice before uh, committing any kind of Nuisance behavior.
0: So, th- this term slum villages and also the term scum villages people have been using in, in the Netherlands to describe these container neighborhoods. W- where did that term come from?
2: Well, originally there was a politician in the Netherlands. His name is Heert Wilders. And uh, he is fairly
0: far right, isn't he?
2: Yes, exactly. And he had talked about having these areas where bad people should be sent, kept in isolation, monitored by uh, social services and the police. And they might not even be allowed to go back if they don't change their behaviour. So we're talking initially about a six-month period where these people would be put in these isolation containers. It sounds like a reality TV show, it doesn't does. it? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this is real life in the Netherlands.
0: You know. I- and I mean, Amsterdam has such a reputation for being a liberal city and this idea of sticking, uh, you know, noise offenders, if you will, uh, and worse into containers just sounds so medieval. What's been the reaction from uh, Amsterdamers?
2: From what I've seen, from what I've read, I think actually a lot of people think this is a pretty good idea. I think if you are a liberal, it feels a bit uncomfortable thinking about whether people who cause a mess are are going to be put in these places. And as the council actually themselves said, they don't want to create these hotbeds of troublemakers, the troublemaking territories as they could become known. They're going to be spread out. They're going to have them in different places um, and with the aim of rehabilitating these people.
0: You know, the, the other thing that strikes me is that, you know, if you're liberal and you don't have a lot of money, there's a possibility you may already be living in a container because it's actually a a popular form of recycling and getting your own housing.
2: Yeah, I I think the connotations that that would go with this if you were forced to go and live in a container, and you're right, there's it's not very the same, same as free choice, is it? No, exactly. The thing in the Netherlands, they've got this um, quite successful policy really of um, putting people who don't have much money in the homes run by the council to keep um, squatters out. So that's been quite successful. And I said to somebody recently talking about um, some benefits, well, what about the people who don't have jobs? This was a, a member of the government. He said, we don't have poor people in the Netherlands. <laughs> uh, so there's this kind of understanding that the, it's a very well-off society. The country still has a AAA credit rating, which is so rare and um, so so uh, coveted these days. So things aren't bad here. And I think maybe this is just part of a plan to try to keep it that way.
0: I suspect, uh, Anna, you're going to try and keep your uh, stereo volume uh, relatively Modest levels here. Hereafter, I'm
2: delivering cake to all of my neighbors tonight. <laughs> I tell you,
0: <laughs> the BBC's Anna Holligan speaking with us from the Netherlands. Thank you so much. Thank you. So right now, you might be listening to my voice coming through your car stereo, or maybe your computer or smartphone. But you're almost certainly not recording this program on a cassette, aiming to listen later. The cassette tape has basically taken its place alongside the eight track tape and essentially vanished into the audio abyss. Almost. In Britain, there's one group that still relies on the trusty cassette, the police. Here's the world's Andrea Crossan.
9: It could be called a technology dinosaur. The audio cassette tape. They sound like this. Tinny, scratchy, echoey. But in the UK, if you're being interviewed by the police, they record the conversation, and this is the technology they use.
10: We still use cassette tapes in the rural stations where we interview people who aren't under arrest but are suspected
3: of an offence.
9: Police Inspector Richard Gubbins is with the Suffolk County Constabulary. Police in the UK use millions of the little plastic cassettes every year and then store them as evidence. Inspector Gubbins says that the cassette system is cheap and reliable.
10: It's tried and tested technology um, and is fully compliant with the laws of evidence. The tapes are sealed in the presence of the suspect, so uh, there's full integrity of evidence for later presentation before the courts if needed.
9: Cubbins says that in the main custody centres, they do have state-of-the-art DVD-based video technology, and they will eventually phase out cassette tapes. So in this digital age, is there any love left for the cassette? Connor McNicholas is a journalist and former editor for the British music magazine NME. He's still a fan.
1: Cassettes are wonderful
10: things. Uh, they're kind of wonderful in retrospect. They were always slightly the poor cousin uh, of records, you know, proper vinyl. Vinyl was there for people who were music experts. Cassettes were owned by people who just wanted to consume pop music.
9: So how about all those blank tapes the police will be left with after they go digital? Well, there's always the mixtape.
10: Putting together a good mixtape for a prospective boyfriend or girlfriend was absolutely the way to, uh, to get into their affections without a doubt. Mm-hmm.
9: The world, I'm Andrea Crossin.
11: Trying to find the perfect match between pretentious and pop. Some crappy art that took way, way too long to draw. Handwritten track listing restarted every time the pen smudge. Encoded title doesn't give away as much as it should. It started with a mix.
0: In my hallway at home is an old Sony cassette deck, and we're in the process of deciding, does it stay or does it go? What about you and your current relationship with the cassette? How do you use it, or how did you use it? We want to know. So tweet what you're doing with cassette tapes. Just use the hashtag Throwback. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. ahead on the world fighting breast cancer in Haiti.
6: The fact is people are suffering and dying, and we can't save all of them, and we can't save the same group of patients and with the same group of diagnoses um, that we can in the U.S., but there's so much suffering uh, that we can't avoid, and there's so many cancers that we can treat.
3: E.R.I.'s The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The incidence of cancer around the globe is expected to increase 75% by 2030, and most of that increase will occur in developing countries. This week on The World, we're looking at the challenge of fighting cancer in low-income countries, where the disease often gets little attention. Many people, even doctors, think that cancer is too expensive to treat in the world's impoverished lands. But an American charity argues that's not the case, and it's taking on breast cancer against long odds. Joanne Silberner reports from Haiti.
6: Having breast cancer in Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, often means no care at all or care that's too costly for any common person to afford, or a lot of initial missteps. I felt something in my breast that hurt, says this woman. She gives her name only as Merlin. She's a big woman in tight braids with a tough look on her face and a forceful way of speaking. But she admits she was scared.
11: It
6: hurt, she says. It formed a mass. I didn't know what it was. She says the lump grew so large that it broke through her skin. Her clothes couldn't cover it. Local doctors were no help. Merlin eventually got referred to a clinic run by Haitians and Americans from Partners in Health, a medical charity. Dr. Sarah Stulak heads the group's oncology program. She's helped launch a new push to fight cancer. The reason we're taking it on is is similar to the reasons we've taken on other illnesses is because people are suffering in the countries where we work, and there's something we can do about it. Here in Haiti, in the little town of Kanj, Partners in Health runs a clinic known in Creole as Zanme Lasante. They've been setting up cancer treatment rooms, lining up supplies, and training workers on cancer issues. They're focusing on breast and cervical cancers, the most common cancers among Haitian women. Turns out, dealing with breast cancer in a place like Haiti takes effort and compromise. The effort starts with the patients. When Merlin showed up at the clinic with advanced breast cancer, she got a mastectomy. Now every two weeks, she takes a 12-hour trip on one of Haiti's creaky and overcrowded buses to get to the clinic for chemotherapy. She says she's bucking what her neighbors say.
11: If
6: you get cancer, people say you're going to die because there's no treatment for it. They say even if you see a doctor, you won't find a solution. That's the talk. The breast cancer statistics for women like Merlin are grim, says Dr. Ruth DeMuse, who is heading the oncology efforts at Zanmi Lasante. I don't have a definite number, but I can say that it's very bad. Like more, like half of the women, they, they will die. DeMuse says the biggest problem is women coming in late, long after they've noticed the initial lump. And a lot of women don't come in at all. So DeMuse takes every opportunity to preach early diagnosis. Yeah. Today, she's a few towns over from her clinic. She's at a rally and teaching for International Women's Day. Several hundred women sit in the large lobby of a new hospital that's under construction. Dr. Ruth DeMuse takes the podium and asks the crowd a question. Which cancer most affects women? No one knows. We're going to talk about breast cancer, she says. The podium is flanked by two screens. She shows pictures of breast cancer patients like Merlin with tumors coming out of their chests. She tells the women how to check themselves for suspicious lumps. She says treatment makes a difference. The women I'm sitting next to tell me it's all new to them. Cancer care is a new thing in many developing countries. With all the other health problems facing the poor, there has been little interest in cancer treatment among local and international health experts. Dr. Sarah Stulak says for a medical charity like Partners in Health, focusing on cancer means getting organized. You do have to make sure that you have access to, to advice, to diagnoses, to medications. And some sort of social support to help patients actually get to the hospital. No small order in countries with bad or no roads. With patients coming in so late, diagnosis and treatment often fail. So last year, the Haiti folks got trained in how to use painkillers and provide other comfort care for people dying of cancer. In terms of getting advice, the clinic in Haiti relies on the renowned Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston.
2: Hi, it's Catherine. Let me put it on speaker and see how we sound.
6: The doctors and nurses in Haiti check in once a week with Dana Farber.
2: Hi, Larry.
11: This is everyone in
6: Haiti. Hi, Larry. It's Sarah. Hi, Amy. Today, they're in a simple stucco house near the hospital with a good phone connection. They're on speakerphone with Larry Shulman, head of Dana Farber.
5: um, Seven
6: patients are up for discussion today. Four are women with breast cancer. Larry Shulman in Boston has their medical histories, lab results, and what x-rays are available. So uh, who do you want to start with, Ruth? She's a 28-year-old... The first woman had a breast removed last fall, but the cancer has returned. Schulman suggests a different kind of chemo. Another young woman has had a breast lump removed. In the U.S., lumpectomies generally require weeks of daily radiation treatments after the surgery. But the Partners in Health facility doesn't have any way to administer radiation. So Shulman suggests a full breast removal.
0: Okay, so she needs to go back and have a mastectomy.
6: Okay.
0: And then she needs five years of tamoxifen.
6: The tamoxifen costs just pennies a day, affordable even in Haiti. And there are other opportunities to keep costs down. In Haiti, for unknown reasons, breast cancer mostly hits women in their 20s and 30s. And mammography does not work well in women this age, so Zanmi Lasante doesn't offer it. Cancer surgery, chemotherapy, and aftercare can be costly. Partners in Health provides this all for free. It depends on donors to finance it. The head of the cancer program, Dr. Sarah Stulak, admits they're taking on a big challenge in a country with many other problems. I think some people would say we shouldn't, but the fact is people are suffering and dying, and we can't save all of them, and we can't save the same group of patients and with the same group of diagnoses um, that we can in the U.S., but there's so much suffering um, that we can't avoid, and there's so many cancers that we can treat. People used to say AIDS drugs were too costly and too difficult to deliver in developing countries, and now millions of people with HIV in places like Africa and Haiti are being saved. Stulak says... There's no reason that can't happen with cancer. For The World, I'm Joanne Silberner, Kanj, Haiti.
0: Our story was produced with support from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Tomorrow, Joanne Silberner travels to India, where pap screening for cervical cancer is rare.
3: It's just not possible for us to
0: provide as frequently as it is done in the West. So what do we do? We can't let the women die. We'll hear about an inexpensive test that could save tens of thousands of lives in India each year. Also tomorrow, you'll be able to chat with reporter Joanne Silberner. She and doctors who treat cancer in developing countries will be taking your questions on Facebook. You can find out how to join the chat at theworld.org cancer. There's a presidential election in Ghana on Friday. Many Ghanaians see their nation as a leader as far as democracy in Africa is concerned. Ghana was also the first African nation to win independence from a colonial master. And it's now at the vanguard of a linguistic debate that's being heard in several African countries. The World's Language Editor, Patrick Cox, is here. and Patrick, uh, set the scene for us. How many languages are spoken in Ghana? Marco, there are about 75 to 80 languages
10: spoken in Ghana. Amazing. Um, English, though, is the only official language. There are nine other protected languages, but uh, English is the language of instruction in the
0: schools. Right. And given that there are so many other languages in Ghana before English even came there, how do Ghanaians feel about English being their main, main language? Well, increasingly less
10: good. For many of them, it just feels like a colonial holdover and somewhat backward looking. And this has come up in the presidential election campaign. The televised debates that they have held there in the last few weeks have all been in English which a lot of Ghanaian voters don't understand very well. Mm. So it's a little strange. And, and these debates, they tend to become English-speaking beauty contests with the so-called winners and losers, really based on their English proficiency. And listen to this. This is two of the four candidates speaking about taxes at one of the debates. Uh, and guess which one came out ahead?
4: We must put tax officers to make sure that they go around and make proper collective of our taxes. We even help to give tax holidays to major, major companies who are supposed to be paying taxes.
9: I think that 55 years after independence, it should be possible for the Ghanaian economy to run itself on its own money without being dependent and beholden to foreign donors and foreign nations.
0: Well, if I had to guess, I'd say it was a second guy who won based on kind of proper English, but uh, that, that's only if you're upwardly mobile Ghanaian. If you're downwardly mobile, you're probably like the, the first guy, who was a little kind of coarser. And you may also uh, demand, as more Ghanaians are demanding, that
10: debates such as these are held in some local languages. And, and there is one obvious local language in Ghana to do this in, a language that is far more widely spoken than English is, and that is Twi. It's spoken by about, or understood by about 80% of Ghanaians. The problem is, is it is a tribal language. And so therefore, if you're not part of the tribe or tribes that speak Twi, you may
0: feel that you're being left out here. A little on the outside. So where else in Africa are are locals rethinking their language policies? Yeah, in several countries. In in Uganda, there's a
10: really interesting development where the first ever thesaurus for one of the indigenous languages more widely spoken, Mkore, and a related language, Kiga, it's just been published. And one of the co-authors is Uganda's president. Wow. He's made a point of the fact that he feels these languages got a real raw deal through colonialism, and he's trying to set that straight now. And then there's the French-speaking part of Africa, which, Marco, you know a lot better than I do.
0: Right. Well, I spent three years in in Togo, and uh, there it's a French-speaking country. It's next door to Ghana, interestingly, so it has that same multicultural patchwork, 40 languages plus many more uh, dialects, but French is the official language. And there is, like in Ghana with Twi, there is kind of a a local language that serves as almost a market language that everybody speaks called Mina. But I, I get a sense that you know French, because it's this colonial master, and French is a very can be a very intolerant language. Uh, if you're not a native speaker, people are starting to reject it. They they feel much more strongly like we can build everything around Mina, and we'll throw in the the odd French word if we need it.
10: And you're seeing that in other French-speaking countries, too, in Africa. In Rwanda in 2009, decided to change the language of instruction in schools from French to English. That hasn't been going that well because they don't have enough English-speaking teachers. Uh, So they've had to phase it in a little bit uh, more slowly than they they hoped they were going to do. But that hasn't put off Gabon, another Francophone country, from announcing
0: that it is considering doing something similar. So does this mean, Patrick, what's your take? I mean, does it mean that uh, French is in more trouble than English in Africa? It, it may well be,
10: because English is the global language, after all. And it holds that attraction above and beyond any kind of colonial baggage that it may have. French, you just get the feeling that it, it's somewhat receding in its appeal.
0: Mm. Well, as the Togolese would say, Oh, non de Dieu lai, c'est grave, ces problèmes-là. Um, (laughs) the world's language editor, Patrick Cox. You can hear more on Africa and languages in the latest World in Words podcast. Also in the same podcast, Patrick? Yeah, we talk about
10: food idioms in various countries. Swedish is very good in that department. And we also consider
0: a linguistically challenged bank robbery. Mm, Very intriguing. All right, check it out at theworld.org. Our GeoQuiz today takes us to much colder latitudes, way north to Russia, where heavy snow has created some major headaches for drivers in recent days. Thousands of cars and trucks were caught in a three day traffic jam along a Russian highway we want you to name. It links Moscow to St. Petersburg before continuing on to Finland. Trucks use the two lane highway to carry cargo back and forth between Russia's two largest cities. Over the weekend, sections of it were backed up for more than 100 miles due to heavy snow. Now some disgruntled drivers are pointing the finger at the Russian government. They want to know why there aren't better snow removal and emergency services on one of Russia's most heavily used roads. We just want to know the name of the highway between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Not too tough. The answer and more on the traffic jam coming up in just a bit. Quick note now before the break. You know the scene at the end of Charlotte's Web where the spider hero dies? One of the saddest moments in children's literature. Well, today, the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History had a kind of Charlotte's Web moment. They announced that celebrity spider Nefertiti has died. Nefertiti was a spider knot. Last July, NASA sent her to the International Space Station. She was part of an online video contest. An 18-year-old Egyptian student came up with the idea to send her into space. Nefertiti lived at the space station for 100 days, proving that her species was able to adapt to the effects of weightlessness and still be able to capture prey. You can see Nefertiti in action at theworld.org. The spider landed back on Earth in October and spent her final days at the Smithsonian. This morning, before the museum doors opened, a member of the staff discovered that Nephi, as she became known, had died of natural causes. She was 10 months old, only two months shy of the average lifespan of spiders like her. On its Facebook page, the Smithsonian said Nephi was a special animal that inspired so many imaginations. Nephi was not the first spider-naught, by the way. Arabella and Anita, who both spun webs in space, died at the first American space station, Skylab, back in 1973. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for the name of a Russian highway. That's been a driving nightmare over the past few days. It was all snarled up with traffic. As many as a thousand trucks and cars were backed up due to heavy snow that's been falling over parts of Russia. AFP reporter Maria Antonova is in Moscow. So one TV announcer said, Maria, that Moscow is one step away from a complete transportation paralysis. What exactly is going on?
4: Yes, that was the top news today. Um, that was uh, a reporter on Channel One, the most popular channel in Russia. And um, in Moscow, basically, there was a lot of snowfall overnight. And uh, as always, that catches uh, services by surprise, all sorts of road services. Uh, and people who drive to work, they had to spend a uh, very long time sitting behind the wheel.
0: But describe what you've seen that makes this seem so bad. I mean, I've heard that you know, there are food trucks going out on the highway to feed people because there's, they've been stuck well, for so there's long. there's
4: actually kind of, the hotspot, actually, the highway M10, it's not in Moscow, it's a highway between Moscow and St. Petersburg, and uh, about halfway through, there's a, a city called Tver, which is where people were stuck in traffic for, some of them were in traffic for about 40 hours. Saturday was the worst day, kind of, for, for them, and the uh, the traffic jam was about 120 miles long, so uh, that was a, a big catastrophe. And they're saying right now that it's much better. I mean, I can't testify to that because I'm in Moscow, but all kinds of volunteer groups kind of helping out the truck drivers stuck in the forest. And right now there are still some, some jams along the way, but I mean, they're not nearly as bad as they were two days ago but people are kind of designing t-shirts right now that say i was there in the m10 traffic jam <laughs> so it's quite a kind of a cultural phenomenon by now
0: Right. And that seven to eight hour drive from Moscow to St. Petersburg happens along the M10 highway. That is the answer to our geo-quiz. What about the road itself, Maria? How is it able to handle winter weather? I would think that it's pretty uh, robust.
4: That's one of the big criticisms right now is because uh, it goes through so this very region. that's covered with forest and there's not very many villages along the way. Uh, so a lot of the time people are sitting in the forest. Basically, there are no facilities at all. There are No place to buy food. There is, you know, nothing there, basically. People ran out of gas, ran out of battery power in their phones. They were completely stranded. So right now, even I think um, the prime minister yesterday said that we need to improve infrastructure, especially on key routes, such as this one.
0: These are still the early days of winter, and it sounds like the the first big snowfall tends to throw Russians for a loop. But when it comes to these cold, snowy winters, is there a distinctly Russian cultural attitude?
4: Oh, I think definitely. I mean, snow is very really nice. I think it's quite beautiful, especially in Moscow, which, um, you know, turns to dirt and slush rather quickly. So when you have snowfall covering all of that, Most people, if they don't have to drive anywhere, they actually enjoy it very much. They go out and they, you know, walk with their kids and the kids play. And, you know, it's just like everywhere. Everyone loves snow unless you're trying to get somewhere.
0: (laughs) When is more snow expected in Moscow?
4: The forecast I checked today said uh, no snow for the next couple of days, and then it's going to snow again Friday and several days in a row.
0: Right, and then every day after that until April.
4: Well, we'll see.
0: (laughs) Maria Antonova is with the French news agency AFP in Moscow. Thanks very much for your time, Maria.
4: My pleasure.
0: Let's end the program today with an album of, well, we'll call it Brazilian music, and you'll understand my hesitation in a moment in calling it Brazilian. But the title of the CD is in Portuguese, I have a feeling you'll understand some words in it. It's called "Músicas e Palavras dos Bee Gees. Here's a taste.
11: Lembro bem daqueles dias que reinava alegria e tudo era perfeito como poesia. Não me preocupava o amanhã E não conhecia a tristeza Como emendar um coração quebrado Como fazer a chuva não molhar
0: if it wasn't the words, I'm sure you got that tune by the chorus, Como Emendar Um coração" in Portuguese, How Do You Mend a Broken Heart, one of the canon of the Gib Brothers from Australia. They're better known as the Bee Gees. The singer here is Brazilian Ana Gazola, and her new CD is titled, as I said, Músicas e Palavras dos Bee Gees, Music and Words of the Bee Gees. So, Ana, why, why do this? Why translate Bee Gees songs into Portuguese?
7: Well, you know, the Bee Gees... They were so huge in Brazil. People from my generation, we used to listen to BGS all the time, and uh, basically, we loved the songs, but we didn't understand because you know we don't speak English in Brazil. Mm. So we 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 got the feeling of the music, but we really didn't understand what the words, the meaning. So I think the the fact that now people can hear the songs that they love and understand what that was all about is such a, a wonderful thing.
0: So you talk about the feeling of the Bee Gees and that people in Brazil really like that feeling. Connect the feeling in their music to what Brazilians feel. I mean, what is that connection?
7: Well, I think that those songs that we chose for this album... They're all romantic songs. And, you know, romantic feeling and love feeling, they really don't have a language. You just feel it. Uh, it's the music. It's, the, it's just romantic.
0: Now, you live in Los Angeles these days, Ana. Do you think songs from the 70s actually work 40 years later in Portuguese? I mean, have you heard from Brazil whether this album is popular there?
7: I think they do work because, first, they are big hits and beautiful songs. And uh, our album is very acoustic, very modern in some way. Mm. And the way I'm singing them is, is actually the opposite way that the Bee Gees did, because they had like so much orchestra and synthesizers. And we, we have done this in a very simple way. More acoustic and more about the voice.
11: Vejo os teus olhos no sol da manhã, sinto teu toque nas gotas da chuva. Se estou longe de você, não sei viver. Nada tem graça na vida. So tão e
0: Ana Gazola singing from her album Musicas e palavras dos Bee Gees Watch the video and read about my Saturday night favorite moment the night I got into Studio 54 at theworld.org From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation, for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet.
0: PRI Public Radio
3: International